You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, big people, little people, (laughs) people of all tongues, tribes, and nations. All right. Welcome. Uh, As you probably have figured out by now, you're listening to Distilling Theology. What? That's that's a podcast that I co-host with my dear Presbyterian friend, Blake Courtright, who is not only ruggedly handsome, but has long flowing locks and a flannel, as he should. How you doing, brother? Uh, better now, and I'm um, about to be better because we're going to have some scotch, and then uh, after this, I'm going to have some steak. So, you know, that that's just like good all around. This is a good yes. time. Yes, it is. How are you doing, dude? I'm doing well. I just had some beef stew. Ooh. I'm about to drink some scotch also. Um, the weather is finally cool. It's not hot and d- disgusting outside. I am thrilled. I'm excited. Um and you know what else is exciting, Blake? Oh, snap. Tell me. <laughs> we have the biggest, the greatest, the most glorious giveaway we have ever done. It's true. We have three winners for this giveaway. And uh, we're not going to do the whole thing we did last week with Eric, but go back and listen to that episode because it's great. Uh, the whole episode, but especially the giveaway tag at the end in this case. Uh, but we have three winners, and all three of them, thanks to our publishing friends, are going to be receiving a copy of The Wonderful Works of God by Herman Bavink, provided for us by Westminster Seminary Press, a copy of Creed's Confessions and Catechisms, provided for us by Crossway, and a copy of The Valley of Vision, provided for us by Banner of Truth. So, three books, each winner, and basically the differentiator between first, second, and third place is that first place is going to get two of our new Canadian Glencairn glasses. And Justin, what is second and third place getting? Well, of course, second place is still going to get uh, two DT Glencairn glasses. Ooh. And third place, the even rarer, uh, believe it or not, will get two DT Rocks glasses. There's not many of those in the wild. So it's that true. is exciting. It is. it is thrilling. It is overwhelming. Honestly, guys, we are thrilled um, and super grateful for all of you uh, because uh, because of you guys, we're able to do these types of giveaways and we love giving back uh, for all the support you've given to us. Amen. Yeah, it's been fun last Where year. Where can they go? Uh, well, you can go to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and enter for your chance to win by Monday, October 31st, a.k.a. Reformation Day. And uh, we're really excited about this. This is the longest time we've run one of our giveaways, but because it's so grand and so epic, um, we really wanted to give a lot of people a lot of opportunity to get in. Uh, we're really excited to get these books out into the hands of three of our listeners because Basically, since we started the show, we've been recommending The Wonderful Works of God by Bavink, uh, The Valley of Vision mm-hmm. from very early on. And while not necessarily the book Creed's Confessions and Catechisms, because that's a fairly recent publication, we have been recommending 
creeds, confessions, creeds. and catechisms <laughs> as resources. So to have them all in this beautiful hardbound book, uh, wonderfully edited by Chad Van Dixorn and published by Crossway, is just thrilling. And uh, again, we can't say thank you enough to Westminster Seminary Press, Crossway, and Banner of Truth for providing us with copies of these books to give away to our listeners. Um, because like us, they want people to have access to these phenomenal resources. That's why they all do what they do. Now, uh, enough giveaway. We'll remind you again at the end and next week so you don't miss out. But uh, Justin, what's in our glass tonight? I'm excited. Um, we are going to be sipping an 18-year-old single malt scotch Ooh. by Lac Lamond. It is aged in American oak casks. Um, it is 92 proof or 46% ABV. Um, you got it for what, 75 bucks for the bottle? Yeah, um, that's why I picked it up. Which, basically, yeah, yeah. That, that, that honestly, an eighteen-year scotch for seventy-five bucks, you got you got to try it. That's right. Um, and uh, this distillery was founded in eighteen fourteen. Uh, apparently, uh, this is this is what um, this is what they have to say. Uh, this is an eighteen-year-old single malt scotch whiskey from the Loch Lomond Distillery in the Highlands region, and after eighteen years maturing in oak, this expression has developed a complex flavor with a U profile. Featuring red berries, mature oak, vegetal peat, and runny honey. <laughs> Lac Lamond are renowned for being able to produce a variety of styles at their distillery, including malts, grains, and blends. Mm. And then it says, top stuff, exclamation point. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Those, those <laughs> Europeans, man, they know how to do it. But uh, yeah, I, there's a little backstory with this. So when I recorded yeah. the episode with Greg Beale that we're about to hear... Um, and we talked about biblical theology. He and I didn't taste anything. He just had some wine, and I had some of this in the glass. Justin and I tried to record this this like intro and and pre roll and all this stuff um, months ago, and it just didn't it didn't land. And also, when we tasted this, I think we'd both had something before. Like we, I think we were catching up on a couple of things, and we didn't really let it sit in the glass, so we didn't give it a fair shake. So I said, you know what? I'm I'm out visiting you uh, briefly for for work, so <laughs> let me give you some samples, uh, and we resampled it. Because we want to give things a fair a fair tasting. So that said, um, it smells pretty nice. I don't know, Justin. What stands out to you immediately about this? Yeah. So uh, I, it's been a while. I don't really remember smelling it and, and everything that we did the first time. And we we have so many whiskeys uh, on this show that it's hard to sometimes remember how things have smelled. Um, there's definitely ones that stick out. Obviously, For some sure. of our favorites um, and stuff that I've returned to regularly. But uh, so far. It's not too bad. It's it's definitely strong on the honey, sort of like a honey cereal, maybe. Um, yeah, there's maybe. there's a little fruitiness underneath that. I'm almost thinking, almost like a fruity uh, custard or a fruity yogurt thing. Like there's something kind of like a, a dairy and fruit combo going on with that honey and that uh, and those oats. Like it's a very um, European scotch, which is one of the dumber things yeah. I've said out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of getting like a, I'm getting some of the oak, I'm getting almost like a tobacco, uh, or, or like a tobacco toffee blend. I could say the toffee. I, I'm not quite getting the the dryness of tobacco, but I'm getting some of that sweetness of toffee, like you're saying there. And we are sipping out of our uh, frosted Glencairn glasses, which are our Patreon uh exclusives and we'll talk about that at the end of the show um you guys are probably tired of hearing about it but they're just so good and uh we love they them. are so good i'm not saying it makes your whiskey taste better but if i was you can uh you know <laughs> use your imagination <laughs> um yeah now this 
This is a very pleasant smell. As I would expect from an 18-year-old whiskey, it is more mellow. We've only had a couple of, of scotches on this show that are 18 years old. I actually want to pull up our spreadsheet real quick while we're talking here and see how many things on the actual podcast we've tasted that have uh, you know, 18-year-old scotch or 18-year-old spirits. Very early on, I remember we tasted Oban 18. That was episode mm-hmm. two. And also early on, episode five, we tasted Highland Park 18. Um, that was good. That was very good. The Oban I really like was that. also good. I think that's actually it. So I think this is this is the third uh, in, in 101 episodes. This is only the third 18-year-old scotch we've tried. So, um, or the only, only the third 18-year-old spirit we've tried. So, uh, you know, we're going to have to fix that in it's the next 100 episodes. Deal. We've only had a few that have been legally allowed to vote. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of those, yeah, Highland Park was my favorite. I have a hunch this won't be my favorite, but we'll find out. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think there was, a, there was a rut where we were getting into where like everything we were trying was so amazing. And it was like, do you guys even have discerning tastes? Like, yes, we do. We do. <laughs> and that was part of the fun last week with Eric, right? With the, yeah. with Johnny Walker Blue Label. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. There's so many. I think part of the problem is as your palate develops and you start getting a flavor for different, uh, or you start able to pick up different flavors and the and the complexity of the different distilled spirits. There's not a lot out there that's really that bad, especially yeah. if you can really pick and like pick out the flavors and really understand the intent behind it, and then look at it for how much it costs. You know, it, so. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we drink that's like, man, this is really good, especially for the price or especially for this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those things where maybe early on things might have been like, oh, no, I, I either like this or I don't like this. But now it's like, ooh, I like this about this whiskey. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've definitely had bad things. I mean, we did the whole episode where we had the worst possible whiskeys we could get our hands on. That's true. That was a fun stream. <laughs> and uh, so, don't worry, guys. There will be more uh, more to come. I, I was just... I got to do another cocktail episode. No, please don't. <laughs> Never again. Um, though I did, uh, I I was shuffling around my uh, my office in here. It's a little bit neater than it's been because life has been crazy. Um, and I found some of those. No ice? Yeah, found some samples of uh, Johnny Walker Red, Jack Daniels Old Number Seven. Uh, I found another sample of Boule um, hanging out. So there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely stuff to taste uh, that's more normal, and yeah. uh, and we love it. But we also like the weird stuff. Like I'm still thinking about yeah. that Edradour Eleven that Andrew sent us that we Dude. tried. I still dream about that uh, in a totally non-weird way. Anyways, enough talky, <laughs> more tasty, and uh, cheers. <laughs> Less talky, more tasty. That's got more of a pear note on the palate than I was yeah. expecting. I didn't get that in the nose at all, but... Wow, that's actually very pleasant. Honey and pears. Yeah. A little bit of that. I'm getting more of that like custard or creaminess very creamy mouthfeel maybe like a maybe like a nutty bread yeah along with the with the, like a pear jam Ooh. There, there's kind of a lingering kind of hint of peat it's not strong on that at all yeah um i think it's noticeable but yeah very minimal it feels out of place that's honestly yeah. my only critique because yeah. in and of itself, that like vegetal, like funky note isn't bad, but relative to this, like very clean pears and and vanilla and custard, like those sorts of sweet, clean flavors, to have something a little funky, it feels odd to me. It's not bad. It's just this odd. Might, this might be an example of like they've overplayed their hand. In other words, that they pride themselves on having 
a huge variety at their distillery. And rather than being a, 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 a they're kind of a jack of all trades rather than a master of one. Ooh. So they're kind of blending, I think, some of the styles that maybe maybe they'd be better off leaving out. Yeah. Um, but overall, I mean, I would drink it. Oh, yeah. I mean, for an 18-year, it's 75 bucks. That's not bad at all. No. And it's very mellow and very smooth. But it's still, at that 46%, it still has a little bit of bite to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like it's like last week where it was- I'm sure Eric would disagree, yeah. but- I mean, for an 18-year, a lot of 18 years, um, you get so mellow, and this definitely has a little bit of strength. But yeah, I'm thinking back to things we've tried, right? Um, The Brooklotti, which has that peat element Mm. and that really dark Mm -hmm. fruits and cocoa, and then the the Talisker Distiller's Edition that's very peaty and camp smoky, but also has that dark fruit. Um, Adrador kind of had a little bit of that going on, so... There's these, or when you and I tasted the Glendronic Peated at my apartment as well. Mm, um, so there are certain so flavors good. that blend. I think what's throwing me is that this reminds me, this is brighter in some ways than like the Belveni profile. Sure. With those, like that pear Definitely. is really pleasant and surprising. And yeah, the vegetal funk of that um, peatiness at the end is just like a weird finish to me. Um, not, that again, might not really bad. tickle somebody's yeah. It's that might really weird. tickle somebody's fancy. It's just kind of unusual. Yeah, it's just a weird combo after having such a clean, refreshing tasting scotch. Um, that that's the yeah. and I think it'd be different if maybe that wasn't the finish. But yeah, it, it's interesting, and I cannot fault it for that. You know what? Like, I I think <laughs> yeah. it should be interesting, and it is definitely. Lachlamond kind kind of came out of the kind of came out of nowhere for me. Like I had yeah. never heard of them, and then one day I was in the uh, liquor store. And I saw a Loch Lomond and it was like 35 bucks or 40 bucks. Yeah. And it was like, it looked decent. So I was like, I got it. And it wasn't bad for the price. No. I really couldn't complain. Yeah. Um, and then you found a couple. And yeah. so far, I mean, they've been well priced for, for what you're getting, I think. Yeah. If you're looking for like a budget scotch that's good, I I, I wouldn't have any trouble recommending these guys. No, and I'm excited to try uh, the 12, and I think you have the sample of the the one that's not age dated. And I got the 12 again, a yeah. 12 year old Scotch for like 30 bucks. That instantly catches my attention. Um, there's one that we have yeah. around the house, and I sampled it for us called Aberfeldy 12, which I got for 35 dollars. Mm. And it's no Balvenie, but it's a 35 dollar 12 year old single malt that's pretty tasty. So, anyways, like that, <laughs> and that's kind of the fun of this show, right? We get to try all different things. Um, <laughs> super rare and super expensive to very, very economic and interesting. Like that, that's really the only reason we started the show is to, to just, just have it, <laughs> just try different things. Well, like, like, uh, I, it was kind of funny though, that with, with Joe, it was bullet. And with, uh, the Presby cast guys, it was Evan Williams white label, which are both <laughs> yeah. g- fine for the price point. Yeah, and, and I, perfectly fine. And I mean, the white label, I always try to keep that around cause it's just a great sample. But anyways, um, yeah, this and is a good mixture tasty. too. I'm glad we I, tried I liked it. it. I like to put the white label in my decanter because if somebody comes over and they're like, hey, I want some bourbon, I don't feel bad about pouring it because it tastes pretty good and it's not expensive. Yep. So so a very sad story about that. I did that with a bottle of 12-year-old Lac Le Monde. Again, 30 bucks, so it's not that sad. I got this mm-hmm. very nice looking vintage decanter at a at a store. And then a friend of mine was like, hey, is that like lead crystal? And I was like, I don't know. And I And so I still to this day don't actually know. So I haven't drank out of it because I'm like, I don't want to get, you know, lead poisoning because <laughs> in those like aggressive lead crystal, it'll seep into the spirit. So I have a, a, a full bottle 
uh, a full decanter that I just potentially wasted. Yeah. And and maybe it isn't. I'm going to empty it out at some point and do the test to see if it's lead crystal. If it isn't, uh, then we're we're good to go. But if it is, you know, it, it's pretty looking. What I would do is, yeah, I'd pour it back into another bottle. Yeah. Test it so you're not dumping the whiskey. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I won't. I won't send it. Um, but I do have other decanters where I do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Decan- and decanters are great for that. They're display. And, yeah. and it goes to show the presentation goes a very long way in your perception of taste. Yeah. Um, I was talking yeah. about this when I, I, I played it up this meal the other night I was telling you about with the steak and the risotto. Um, I'm just finally learning some things. So, you know, uh, I, but anyways, I, 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 I've been teaching Blake how to cook steak. Yeah. And my wife has been, you know, grateful that I'm learning more, more food stuffs. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I plated it up and I, and I gave this big presentation and one of my friends was like, wow, that looks so formal. And I was like, well, when I worked at the speakeasy, I would like mm-hmm. get yelled at if I sent out a drink without the correct garnish, because the presentation is a big part. Like we see with our, you know, we taste with our eyes first um, and then our noses. So yeah. It, it's that whole perception is reality kind of thing. Yeah. You know, if you like. You can go into the, you can go into one restaurant, order a filet and spend $25 and it'd be great. But then you go into another fancy restaurant and spend $75 for the same filet, but they can charge more because of presentation and because of the, the uh, sort of theme that they've put on as though there's some big fancy restaurant. And in fact, it might even be a worse piece of meat, Yeah, but you paid more for it because of, because of the way they presented it. So yeah. That's why Blake and I present ourselves the way that we do, so everybody's always pleasantly surprised. Oh, touche, touche. Uh, especially our patrons who who have been patient tonight because we're testing out a new um, streaming service to manage our video, and we're very excited about that. We're able to do that thanks to our supporters on Patreon, but more about that later. Uh, Justin, I'm excited. More about that at the end of the sketch. That's right. Uh, I'm excited <laughs> to finally release this interview with GK Beale that uh, I had over a year ago. And so Patreon has had access to this this whole time. Um, it just, it, it was a, a thing where it didn't flow in the immediate structure. We had a hiatus there and then it didn't fit into like any of the boxes of what we were doing for a while. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just wait for the right opportunity to drop it. And I think now after hundred episodes is the right opportunity uh, for this really in-depth drink from a fire hose episode about biblical theology. And uh it, in that way, it reminds me of my conversation or our conversation with James Dolezal, um, yeah. where I ask a oh, question yeah. and then you get like a 20 minute monologue of an answer, but it's so good. <laughs> Dude, it was so good. So good. This is such a good conversation. I'm very excited for you guys to hear it. But- and he's got such a theological name, GKB. Oh yeah. I love you it. Know? I love it. <laughs> it's such a good name. And the books, uh, the, the books are great. Highly recommend. Um, I have a couple through Lagos and then, um, I have one that he just published with another author called the story retold, which is more of a lay level. It's still a huge book, but it's more of a lay level intro to biblical theology. So highly recommend all that. But before we jump into that, we're going to pray and then we'll transition us into that episode, uh, with GK Beale. So Justin, uh, will you pray lead us, uh, from our Valley of Vision, which all three of our giveaway winners will receive this bonded leather copy of the Valley of Vision. Um, Yours won't have my name on it, though, it, like mine does. I mean, it could. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it could. Just throw mine in there randomly. It could. It could, you know. Uh, probably not, though. Anyway. Y'all, now that, uh, now that you are interested in getting a Valley of Vision because of this giveaway, um, uh, <laughs> re-listen to this episode after you've won, and then turn with us to page 82. <laughs> 
no, but for real, guys, if you do have a Valley Vision, uh, turn to page 82, assuming it's the uh, sort of leather-bound or faux-leather-bound faux edition. Um, the prayer is called Deliverance. O God of unsearchable greatness, before thee I am nothing but vanity, iniquity, perishing. Sin has forfeited thy favor, stripped me of thy image, banished me from thy presence, and exposed me to the curse of thy law. I cannot deliver myself, and am in despair. But a resource is found in thee, for without my desert or desire, thou didst devise an everlasting plan, honorable to thy perfections, and when which angels desired to look into, and the word which announces all the glory of the good, this goodness is nigh in me, and invites me, beseeches me, may I, a convinced and self-despairing sinner, find Jesus as the power unto salvation, his death the center of all relief, the source of all gospel blessings. Help me to repair to that cross, be crucified to the world by it, and in it find deepest humiliation, motives to patience and self-denial, grace for active benevolence, faith to grasp eternal life, hope to lift up my head, love to bind me forever to him who died and rose for me. May his shed blood make me more thankful for thy mercies, more humble under thy correction, more zealous in thy service, more watchful against temptation, more contented in my circumstances, and more useful to others. Hmm. Amen. Amen. I love this thrust at the end here. Um, may I find Jesus as the power unto salvation. And then this line, may his shed blood make me more thankful, more humble, more zealous, more watchful, more contented, more useful. Um, mm. It comes back to what I think we were, a little bit of what we were talking about a few weeks ago with Romans chapter 5 in the new, like this this being in Christ, this union with Christ, yeah. and both the active and passive obedience of Christ. And like that is one of the biggest things for me in Reformed theology that has been such a balm. And, and that's yeah. tied very deeply into our biblical theology in the topic of the evening. Um, how it's not just a systematic doctrine, it is emerged organically through the narrative of Scripture, starting in Genesis. Um, right? He will bruise uh, the, the serpent. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel, right? There is both the, the passive reception on Christ, but also his active mm -hmm. work of crushing the serpent's head. And um, it's super, super good. And we'll talk about it more as we keep going through Christology, which we're going to be picking up in the coming weeks again. And I'm so excited for that. Um, but uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you guys to our guest, the Reverend Dr. Greg Cabeal, who has his PhD from Cambridge. A uh, little background, he holds the J. Gresham Machen Chair of New Testament and was a professor of New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary for 11 years. Currently, as of the time of the recording of the interview, he is a professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas, and he is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's the author of many books, including A New Testament Biblical Theology, The Unfolding of the Old Testament in the New, The New International Greek Testament, Commentary on the Book of Revelation, The Temple and the Church's Mission, The Story Retold, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament, and many, many more. So without further ado, folks, 
Here is my discussion from last year with Dr. G.K. Beal. Dr. Beal, welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us tonight. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. Wonderful. Um, now, jumping into our topic, uh, we're talking about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. And just as a personal question to you, what sparked your interest in studying and, and eventually teaching and writing about this particular topic? Um, a long time ago in seminary studies, I took a course under a fellow by the name of S. Lewis Johnson. He was a Reformed Baptist. This was at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and uh, it was a course on the uh, use of the uh, old and the new, and um, <clears throat> that got me interested in the topic. So I continued to study that in seminary and continued. I've done it uh, for the rest of my life. So that's, um, that's what got me into it. Wonderful. And as we jump in, a lot of two terms that get thrown around a lot when it, when we start getting into the meat of the text, we talk about context, we talk about content, but two terms that come up a lot, and I was curious for you, how you define them respectively, are hermeneutics and exegesis. So, how would you define those terms, and and how are they interrelated? Yeah, exegesis is just simply the determination of the author's original meaning at a particular historical time in a particular historical context. So that's exegesis. Now, the second term was hermeneutics. Is that what you said? Yes, sir. Now, hermeneutics, um, that's a very, very fuzzy term. You know, people will say, what is your hermeneutic? And is it the new hermeneutic? And there have been a number of new hermeneutics. Um, so it's very fuzzy. And the reason it's fuzzy is because it can indeed refer to various things. Generally speaking, I think probably many, if not most, would agree that hermeneutics are the methodological principles uh, by which we do exegesis. Mm. Secondly, by which we correlate exegesis with one another, old and the new, new and the new, old and the old. And then thirdly, the methodological principles by which we apply our exegesis and correlation of the exegesis. How do we go from the ancient text to the modern world? And I would go further and say that it, it also deals with the philosophical framework of exegesis. For example, some exegetes don't believe in the supernatural. Now, that's going to affect their understanding, say, of the resurrection narratives. Now, some, some who are atheists have, have acknowledged, yeah, Jesus probably did rise from the dead, but they, um, they don't believe in the interpretation of that event by the New Testament, nor do they um, uh, uh, believe that it relates to anything today. Um, so, for example, Rudolf Bultmann, who held what's called the so-called demythologizing hermeneutic, mm. which means the way, and that's, that has to do with application. How do you apply the ancient word to the modern world? Well, he was very pastoral, even though he was a, was a liberal and didn't believe in the resurrection, but he was very pastoral. And he believed the way to be pastoral to modern people was not to foolishly speak of the supernatural, that's ridiculous. That's not pastoral because it's not true. So it's not relevant. You can't apply it. 
And so you need to demythologize what the New Testament's saying when you're preaching it. This is what he taught his students. And so, uh, for example, um, the takeaway from Jesus' death is not that it was a penal substitution, not that it averted wrath, not that it was a defeat of Satan. All these things involved the supernatural. But it was that we should follow his model, which is true. I mean, uh, 1 Peter 2 says that he gave us an example to follow in his footsteps. He, he gave a sacrifice, and we should sacrifice ourselves for one another. So he was, he was explaining scriptural truth there, but that was it. Uh, nothing else was involved in, in uh, the death of Christ. So that's a, a, another example, by the way, of uh, something that's, that one may run into, it, the demythologizing hermeneutic of Rudolf Wiltman and his followers. So that's a philosophical framework of um, exegesis that does have implications. I think we could go further besides exegesis, principles uh, uh, sort of governing exegesis, as well as the correlation of an application and the philosophical framework. I think we could also say that how does historical context relate to the meaning of the text? By that I mean, how does historical background Outside the New Testament, if you find something, say, in the ancient Near East, uh, um, how, how does that relate to um, uh, the Old Testament? For example, there are temples in the ancient Near East, so some people try to look at the temples and explain Israel's temple through uh, ancient Near Eastern temples. Well, is that right? Should we do that? Are they commentaries on uh, Israel's temple? Um, my own particular solution to that is given in my book, The, the Temple and the Church's Mission, in which I see that Israel had a pristine view of the original temple in Eden, and that contributed to their understanding to their late, of their later temple. And it's intriguing that uh, their temple was tripartite, and so were ancient Near Eastern temples, and I, I argue there was a garbled view uh, uh, in common grace, the common grace realm of paganism about the Eden Temple, but they still had, they still had some remnants of the, of the truth of it. Um, but in the New Testament, for example, there are many interpretations in Judaism um, of, of uh, in the BC period and at the time of, of the New Testament uh, of the same text that the New Testament writers are interpreting in the Old Testament. So should we uh, look at those? If we should, do they, how do they inform us? Because they're not inspired. You see, all of that stuff, that, that, those are tough areas. Hmm. So that's historical background. That's a tough area because there's no, there are no rules, really, for interpreting how Old Testament background, or sorry, uh, ancient Near Eastern background or Jewish background uh, should or can inform our understanding of the New Testament. Then, of course, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, hermeneutics deals with the principles governing the relationship of the old to the new, even the old to the old. Hmm. So you can maybe see why hermeneutics is a fuzzy term. Yeah. But I, if I gave a quiz to your listeners, I mean, they might remember some of those items, but they're not uh, probably taking notes for a quiz. They might not remember them all. And so, um, you know, those are, those are what, seven or eight that I mentioned, maybe. And uh, um, it's, so it's a fuzzy term. 
I better stop there. No, that's helpful, though, because I think so often in these discussions, particularly when we start to orbit, um, we spend a long time going through disciplines of systematic theology, and we, we like to put things in nice, neat little boxes and, and have good terms. And it's helpful to remember, uh, as you've reminded us here, that sometimes the terms, a single term encapsulates many different interrelated but distinct concepts uh, or approaches. And yeah. and no, that was really helpful and, and useful to me. And jumping... Now, exegesis, exegesis itself is... You know, to say that it's the determination of the original meaning of an author in a particular historical time, in a particular historical context, I mean, there's a whole uh, uh, unfolding of the elements of exegesis. There's textual criticism, what the text originally say. There is um, grammatical and syntactical considerations. There are considerations of um, uh, what we call uh, discourse analysis. How do you how do you determine the main point of a text? Yes, most pastors. That'd be an interesting question. I, I would like to hear answered. How do they determine the main point in the text? Pretty crucial for preaching. Yeah. Um, and uh, how do you do a word study? The whole method for doing that. Um, how do you use the margins in your Bible? Or, some of them you look up, they don't seem to have relevance. Some do. What What are they there for? How do you use them? Very interesting. Um, how do you know when there's a historical background to your passage that's relevant? Mm. And then, of course, part of New Testament exegesis is old in the new because it's not just quotations, but you have allusions throughout the whole New Testament. They're just uh, the New Testament saturated with... Um, with illusions, we, we can even talk about figures of speech. How do you know when there's a figure of speech? And how do you know what kind of figure it is? This is what I do when I teach exegesis. Yeah. I try to teach these things. But it's a very humble, uh, humbling enterprise because you can see how massive that, um, that it is. And in fact, I, I, Something really important that I haven't mentioned yet that relates to hermeneutics is a genre. What kind of mm. literary type is this? Is this an epistle? Is this a historical document? Is this an apocalyptic document? Is, is this uh, a poetic document? And uh, do each of those kinds of literary types have certain rules? And I think they do. So, yeah. so that really relates to hermeneutics, but also an exegetical enterprise. Because if you don't have, if you don't understand the genre of something, I mean that's the context within which you're right. interpreting. So, um, right. So anyway, I wanted to unfold a little bit of exegesis there. Yeah, that's so good. And you know, we spend our whole time just on those two topics, hermeneutics, oh, yeah. and exegesis. But well, and I should reiterate to our listeners that. Uh, you know, their whole lecture series taught at seminary classes on these topics. So we're just flying by to get a, a you know, hopefully wet someone's appetite with some of these things and, and, and prompt some study. And, and at the end of the episode, we'll get some resources um, for where folks can go uh, if this whets their appetite to, to get a little bit more interest. But as we move in, we talk about interpretation. Um, I know there's a lot of, there, there's other interpretive methods and you've alluded to some of them, but two of the big ones that I 
uh, am familiar with just in the circles that I've been around being in, in Presbyterianism and, and having friends in a dispensational background are um, the grammatical historical and the redemptive historical. Um, so what are some of the major contrasts between those two? And then I guess I'll wrap that into the the next piece of um, what are some of the major contrasts between historical and uh, grammatical and, and redemptive historical and then um, why do we lean into redemptive historic tend to re- lean into that in, in reform circles? Well, first of all, I, I would want to say um, that it's not an either or mm. redemptive historical or grammatical historical. Um, it's a both. And you've got to use both. And the uh, problem is that some people only use a, uh, a historical grammatical approach which sometimes is defined as taking a chapter or a paragraph and then examining it in all the ways I just talked about in terms of the elements of exegesis. Um, but often they don't do old and the new, which is an important element of that. And often they leave out biblical theology, which is really your redemptive historical. You always want to ask yourself, this is huge in preaching as well, or if you're writing a book, it doesn't matter. Where does my passage fit in the redemptive historical storyline of Scripture? I say redemptive historical because my wife doesn't like stories. She thinks, oh, people think that's not true history. So I say redemptive historical storyline. And um, where's my passage fit? Mm-hmm. So you want to see, okay, what preceded this? And... Uh, how does my passage relate to what preceded and how, to, how does it relate to what follows? And so um, that's why I think a, 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 a pastor, a biblical scholar, ought to always have like seven or eight Bibles with full mm-hmm. margins. And you exhaustively look up those margins. And that way you find out if your passage, whether it's in the new or later parts of the old, if it's referring to something earlier. If the author is actually alluding, and if the author is alluding, you've got to go back to that text to explain the present text. It's huge. So, and that this is why, for example, um, uh, uh, in the New Testament, we have a wonderful um, uh, mar- marginal uh, text called the Nesalaland uh, 28th edition Greek text. It's a Greek text, but I tell people who don't know Greek to buy it because the margins are unbelievable. They're the best. They're not inerrant, but they will often give you more often than other kinds of margins uh, references. And that's the best way to preach and to teach redemptive historically. You pre- let's say you're in a passage in the, in the Gospels or in Paul, and there's no uh, Old Testament quotation, but there are two illusions. If you can show those two illusions or conscious illusions by Paul, then you want to go back to the place he's referring to to explain what he's talking about. But often people don't recognize the illusions. Mm. And this is the next level that pastors have got to go to if they're serious. Now, some do, maybe. Maybe I'm, I don't know. I'm not in every, um, you know, congregation on every Sunday, so maybe some do. Um, My suspicion is that a lot don't. Um, So, um, that's very important. So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, historical grammatical exegesis involves everything that I talked about. Um, 
but it really expands on old and the new and your parallel passages that I, that I mentioned as a part of exegesis. But then that goes to the next level also then of biblical theology. And for me, biblical theology is nothing more than expanding grammatical historical exegesis to the canon. Hmm. Hmm. We're still interpreting in the same way we should be a, a particular paragraph or a chapter. But now we're, we've expanded the database of that, um, of, of what we're interpreting. So I, st- I still do the same method of exegesis. You know, if Paul is leading to the old, I go back to the old and do Hebrew exegesis in the same way I talk about the Greek exegesis. Most of the same elements are there. And I come to a conclusion and I say, okay, what part did Paul have in mind? You know, most of the time an author doesn't exhaustively have in mind every detail of the Old Testament context. Mm. That's why it's important to get to the main point. And that way, if you get to the main point, usually, for example, Paul would, you know, overlap to some significant degree or another with that main point in the Old Testament Hebrew narrative. Mm. So, um, um, yeah, that's why I think typ- typology is exegesis. Hmm. Um, some say, no, it's not, because the Old Testament author, uh, he didn't have in mind, hmm. let, let's say the Old Testament author is, is, is recording the Passover, uh, and Israel coming out of the Exodus, and then the New Testament writer uh, talks, alludes to that passage of the Passover lamb, let's say, that was slain. John 19, for example, which does actually quote that. It says, uh, not a bone of him be broken from Exodus 12. Uh, and so, you know, some would say, well, uh, the Old Testament author didn't have that consciously in mind. Only the New Testament writer had it in mind. And so that's not really exegesis. You're not, therefore, the New Testament writer is not developing something that was in the Old Testament writer's mind, so because because grammatical historical exegesis, it's got to be on the conscious level. Mm. So, um, uh, but I'm finding again and again and again that in fact, the New Testament writers refer back to events of the Old Testament that they see foreshadowing something in the New that are typological. That in fact, in the context, you can see some hint some degree of the Old Testament author's awareness that this was foreshadowing. Hmm. Now, in other cases, it is hard. But I I would still contend that if you went to the Old Testament author's peripheral vision, well, I have an article in the Westminster Theological Journal called The Cognitive Peripheral Vision of Biblical Writers. And... um, they, they, they may well have had this in their peripheral vision, but they didn't comment on it. Hmm. So, um, but uh, let's say an Old Testament author has nothing in mind of what the New Testament writer is taking from the Old Testament writer's description of event. Then really, I mean, you're still exegeting the divine intent at that point. Right. Well, that brings me up to, uh, it's actually one of the listener questions, but it's related to this. And it's, uh, this is from David. He says, my Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends in college would always argue that the way the New Testament writers quote and interpret Old Testament passages 
basically that they often paraphrase or give them a new meaning that supposedly wasn't there before means that we can do exactly the same thing with the New Testament today, i.e. find the spiritual or allegorical meaning of the text, um, which is a, a two-sided thing. I've seen, on the one hand, you have the Catholic and the Orthodox kind of taking that to the next level in their interpretations and saying, which which then the dispensationalists, in my experience, the people I've met, have criticized this idea of, oh, you're, uh, you're not taking the Bible literally, um, is a, is an accusation I hear tossed um, kind of in our general direction sometimes. Um, so literal, is- bad, literal, very bad word. <laughs> Should be, um, what's the original intention of the author? That's literal. Um, yeah. Original intention may be figurative. Literal interpreters say, yes, let's interpret figuratively when it's figurative. So let's just really change the nomenclature and say, what we ought to be after is the original intention. Yes. In fact, I would even say it's very difficult to say literal translation because different words typically in a sense have different meanings. So, you know, sometimes a word can have a technical meaning, in which case I will often say um, the most obvious meaning, the most uh, direct reading, something like that is what I'll say. It's even a little scary to say literal translation. Now, I, I tend to think of translations parenthetically as uh, there's no such thing as a, as a, a one-to-one literal translation of the Bible. Every translation, to one degree or another, has some paraphrastic interpretation, even the New American Standard Bible. Um, there's no way. There's certain idioms that have to be rendered interpretatively. It's not hard to show those. But, you know, some people say, well, there's a dynamic, um, uh, dynamic equivalent and um, uh, another one, the opposite of that would be uh, direct equivalent. That's not exactly the way to say it, but uh, dynamic equivalent usually is more of an interpretative paraphrase, and the opposite of that is supposed to be literal. But in reality, what's often understood as literal is less paraphrastic. Hmm. (laughs) It's a matter of less paraphrastic versus more paraphrastic. That's the way we ought to be viewing it. So Hmm. I'll stop my parenthetical explanation at that point. Now, the question you're asking then coming back is, what do we do with the New Testament writers? Uh, because many think they uh, uh, introduce new meanings into the Old Testament. That they, they do not interpret in line with the original meaning of the Old Testament author, nor, for example, uh, do they develop the meaning of the Old Testament author. They do not develop that meaning in line with the original intention. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know who David was talking to, um, but if I may say humbly and not, not with any sense of condemnation, but whoever he was talking to had not studied much of the topic. Hmm. Um, now there is ongoing debate among New Testament scholars that New Testament writers preach the right doctrine, but from the wrong text. Um, 
I don't think they do. Yeah. But there is that debate. In fact, I have cataloged that debate. I have a book called Right Doctrine from Wrong Text. And uh, in that book, I have writers, scholars who, who believe what David's friends said, and then others who don't. Hmm. And I lay it out and I say, well, you, you decide. Um, my own life, since I've been working in this area since 1977, uh, is I really never found the text that um, is out of line with the original Old Testament meaning. Hmm. Now, there may be some very difficult texts. Yeah. Um, but still, uh, I haven't found one that's out of line with the Old Testament meaning. Sometimes it's hard to even locate where where the, the New Testament writer is talking about. For example, in the Matthew 2, it says and Jesus was a Nazarene. It was called, he came from Nazareth, and therefore it says, therefore he was called, uh, he fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah was to be a Nazarene. That's right, yeah. um, let's paraphrase that text. Um, scholars debate where that comes from. There's no, there's no prophecy that the Messiah was to be a Nazarene. Hmm. So, um, <clears throat> or a Nazarite. So, um, I, I still think there's some possible texts that, that are very viable candidates for that passage. Anyway, um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that New Testament writers uh, take the meaning of the Old Testament uh, out, out of context. So, I mean, I've written uh, uh, that book I just mentioned, Right Doctrine from Wrong Text, is still available. First came out in 1994 at Baker Bookhouse. Uh, still available, still selling. Um, and they're classic texts on both sides of the issue. Um, uh, I will mention another work uh, called Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old that Don Carson and I edited. Again, different authors, but all of these authors go through each quotation significant allusions in each book of the New Testament. And um, <clears throat> there, we have not found in that commentator, commentary a, a passage, uh, New Testament use of the old, that wasn't in line to some degree or another with, um, uh, with the Old Testament. Now, some authors uh, argue that, well, New Testament writers would just use the wording of the Old Testament. To kind of adorn what they're saying, mm. kind of like an Israeli politician to maybe attract <laughs> attention and favor among their conservative Orthodox crowd, might throw out a bunch of uh, allusions. Hmm. He has no idea where you know what they really mean in their kind. Oh, yeah. It's just to say, hey, I'm an Old Testament guy. Vote for me. Oh you know? man, I saw an egregious uh, example of that in American politics. I. I don't remember where it was, but my fiance showed me this clip on Twitter of this woman in some political house saying, and the Lord, you know, and the Bible has a verse about voting and it says, uh, make your election sure. And I just, I fell on the floor in, in just shock. I shouldn't be shocked, but I, in shock that people have such a, uh, just disregard for what the text mean. What, I mean, just grammar in that, at that point, right. Uh, you know, this is this call it make your election sure is is talking about voting in in a constitutional election. Um, but at the same time, you know, as kind of ridiculous and silly as that example is, I think oftentimes 
what I'm what I'm gathering from all of this is just the sheer amount of work, um, scholarship, um, labor that this in, that this work entails in biblical theology in these in in exegesis and hermeneutics, yeah. and to that, as we only have a few moments left, um, I'll. I want to make sure I get this question in, and then if we have time, I'll circle back to another one. Yeah, parenthetically interrupt you. You know, that thing on election is great. I'm going to keep that one in my mind. Another <laughs> one I found on a Christmas card says they 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 make merry and send gifts to one another. That's from Revelation 11, where the people rejoicing over the two witnesses. <laughs> oh no, that's that's uh, it's like the uh, the little card that's an inspirational card. All this will be yours if you if you worship me. Um, and it's Satan, you know, the, oh gosh, that's great. But it, but it's, your question then. Oh yeah. So then, uh, just as to make sure I get this one in and if we have more time, we'll, we'll do one more, but, um, you talked a lot about the labor of the pastor over these sermons. And I mean, I've, I've been very blessed in my, in my church. It's a faithful Westminster standard standards, adhering church. It's a church that is saturated in the preaching of the word that is committed to sound doctrine. Um, and week after week, we're seeing Christ in the text, and we're seeing, you know, in this case right now, we're going through the Beatitudes, uh, but before that, we were going through Isaiah. And to be saturated in the re- message of redemption, that that even if we're in the specific text, whatever the the details of that text may be, we don't lose sight of where we fit in that redemptive historic arc. So, and you've talked about this a little bit, but how does this, these interpretive lenses, all these details, all this labor fit into the work of preaching and, and end up in this very consolidated, whether you're talking, you know, 30 minutes, 45, an hour, an hour, 15, depending on what denomination we're in, um, these sermons, how does this work, this labor get us from, you know, a, a, maybe a passage in, in Matthew's gospel or the one you referenced in John about his, his legs being broken or, or not his legs being broken, uh, which is referring back to the lamb in the law. How does this labor get from come, opening to that text to the pulpit on Sunday and, and affect the, the pastoral ministry and, and the lives of the church as, as those of us that are, you know, lay people in the church that are attending um, and lifting up our pastors in prayer and sitting to receive the word of the Lord uh, every Sunday. Um, how does this work affect that? And how can we improve it for the life of the church? I think is probably more the gist of the question. Well, each of your questions really, uh, uh, even that you've already asked, really should take about um, an hour for an answer apiece. Indeed. Uh, and uh, that question addresses why I teach all my courses. Mm-hmm. So take uh, hundreds of hours. Um, uh, preparation for preaching is a very difficult thing. And um, uh, so this is why the first thing, I mean, my, my whole reason for teaching is that students would be able to use a Greek and Hebrew text as scholar pastors so that they can convey God's word to God's people. So they can transfer what they're learning in exegesis to God's people. This is why the first thing I tell them to do is to use this approach, to learn this approach that I teach uh, called discourse analysis, which is tracing 
the development of thought in a passage and finding its main point. You find the main point, you're home. Hmm. All you do, that, that's going to be your, your, your homiletical point is going to be centered around that. And uh, the only transformation is going to be that it's going to be shorter, probably stayed in a more principial way. And, um, um, and, and more personal. Instead of Paul says this, you know, we should do this, et cetera. So, um, hmm. but, uh, so what I teach in my course on when I teach hermeneutics, teaching of this coming spring, the whole way I teach the course, it's structured by the kind of problems we find in a text. Now, that sounds like a negative way to teach. But if you think about it, the things that pastors don't communicate well sometimes, or anybody may not communicate well in explaining a text, is when there's something that's kind of ambiguous, you're not sure what it means. Okay? Um, so I tell them, look, look for the major pro exegesis. I tell them is the science and the art of recognizing what are the most significant problems in the text that need to be addressed. And then those are the most significant things that need to be addressed in the sermon. You have to learn the art of sifting the insignificant on the significant. I mean, there are always going to be a number of textual problems in the passage. A lot of them are not worth mentioning. Okay? You, you may go a few sermons in the New Testament without mentioning anything about the textual problem. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and there are a lot of grammatical and syntactical problems. They don't need sometimes to be mentioned. What always needs to be mentioned is what's the main point in the text. Yes. You've got to know that. And if you know that, the pastor knows that, all else will be added to the pastor. Hmm. Then you'll, 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 you'll see the other, the, the major things that need to be discussed. Maybe there's a word study problem. Uh, and the, by the way, there's a commentary on the most important problems in the passage. Hmm. Let me step back and say there isn't a commentary like that. If there was, it'd be a bestseller. Yeah. But it's given me an idea. I may write this book. I may write this book. There is actually a kind of commentary. If you put the eight or nine or ten translations, even more, if you put them together and highlight the differences, that's where the scholarly uh, uh, people on the committee differed with other committees. And those are important things to discuss. So where you find, for example, a difference between the NIV and the New American Standard, or the New American Standard and the ESV, that's something that needs to be talked about, especially because people in churches may have different versions. Mm. And if you're preaching from one and they're looking at another, so what this guy, what's he talking about? <laughs> I've got this. So, um, uh, so that's, you know, that, that's abstract, but, um, you, you know, so, sometimes there's going to be a word study problem. Translations may give different definitions of words. For example, Second Peter one four. Just working on this one. Uh, 
It says that the uh, promises have come, and by them we have become partakers of the divine nature. Whoa, that's a, that's tough. What does divine nature mean? You got to do a word study on that. Furthermore, some some translations have partner, partner of the divine nature. It can, the word is koinonos. It can mean partner. Well, if that's a translation, what in the world does it mean to be a partner with God? Does it mean equality with God, or what, what kind of partner is that? And if it's partaker, what are we partaking of the actual divine nature and divinizing? Can we, can we divinize ourselves? So you got to do a, a word study on this word koinonos. And in this case, it probably means sharer. It doesn't mean that you're sharing all that's in the divine nature, but that you're, you're, you're sharing part of that divine nature and reflecting the attributes of God. And I think the divine nature in that context is the divine nature of Christ. He's already said to be divine in verse 1. And so I, I think really it's talking about coming into union with Christ there. Mm. But beautiful example of a, a debate between does koinonos mean sharer slash partaker, or does it mean partner? And um, so anyway, uh, the, the, these are pastors need at least 10 translations in English. Highlight them, and that'll help you define where the major problems are. You've got to develop the art of knowing what are the major issues and discussing those, not getting lost in the details. And you will get lost in the details, in fact, if you don't find the main point. If you if, if you if your main point is something that's subordinate and not is a main, not the main point, then you know that's that's bad. Yeah, you're not representing God's word in the way it should be represented. In fact, yeah. preaching and teaching is huge. James three says we're we're much more accountable than other people because we are interpreting and conveying the very the meaning of the very word of God. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's and if, if pastors are not being diligent in studying the scriptures to prepare, that's a moral spiritual failure. Mm. Yeah. And I've seen so much preaching, even among um, when I was coming out of a certain background and into a quasi Calvinistic reformed, the, the young restless reformed movement, and then shifting out of that into reform, confessional reformed theology, landing in Presbyterianism uh, in the PCA, I saw even there a tendency along that journey towards this uh, strictly moralistic preaching, and particularly in broad evangelicalism today in the West, like the, the well, okay, so this passage means um, you need to work harder and, and do better, and no mention of the the work of Christ, no mention, as you said there in First Peter, of union with Christ, um, and it's a tragedy because the people in the pews are missing, as you said there, the intent of the Word of God, and not that there aren't moral applications, and not that there aren't. Uh, pra- I mean, uh, months ago we had Pastor James LaBelle on to speak about the Puritans and all the practical meaning of the text and, and of doctrine but that we can't simply reduce and flatten the Bible's meaning into a book of moral to-dos, uh, or else we've just created the law and we miss the gospel um, if we don't have 
the story of Christ. We don't have redemption. Um, I don't want to take, I don't want to monopolize your time. And as we wrap up, uh, we, we, we've drank from a fire hose here to borrow a modern expression and, and barely scratched the surface as you've stated. So but it's uh, funny you use that uh, illustration <laughs> because that's how my students describe my lectures. <laughs> I've listened to a few of the ones available online and I, I felt that way, which is wonderful. I love it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person I went from, I went from reading, uh, the likes of John Eldridge and Henri Nouwen and Richard Foster to reading Sproul Edwards Calvin. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I, I tend to go off the deep end, uh, a little out of my depth, but I, I enjoy that. Um, and to that end, if other folks listening would also like to, to experience that, uh, I know a lot of your content is available um, publicly and gratefully so. So where can people go to read your writing, um, hear your publicly available lectures, get a hold of, of the books that you've mentioned and others? Where Where's the best place uh, for people to do that? Yeah, I have a website, gkbeal.com. All my publications are listed there. I have an audio of a full course on New Testament biblical theology. I have uh, videos of uh, two different old and the new courses that I've taught uh, in a seminary context. I mean, it's just classroom lecturing without, it's totally unprofessional, but um, if one wants to feel like they're sitting in a classroom, then they'll feel like they're sitting in a classroom. So um, with all the coughing, et cetera, but uh, at any rate, we're getting ready to uh, post some other things as well. So um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, we'll probably be um, uh, posting a, or some book of revelation at some point. Wonderful. That's a, what a, uh, what a misunderstood book of the Bible. I remember when we had, um, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger on earlier in the spring, we talked about amillennialism and he had mentioned how people say, Oh, revelation is so terrifying and this and that. And he goes, this is a book about Christ and it, and it encourages the church. What are we, you know, we're all getting, frightened and doing all these things. And yes, there's frightening imagery and, and warnings, but at the same time, it's a book about Christ. Um, and that was really, really joyous. So to one last final round well, on the, here. On the website, uh, by the way, I do have 25 to 30 sermons on the book of Revelation, if uh, people are interested. I, I'll link the website in the, the show yeah. notes as well, folks. Great. So be sure Can to take to the listen. website. Yeah. Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs> hey, I love it. Okay. We, uh, we, we love, we love if we have guests on, we want to send our listeners on to, uh, you know, we, we're inviting people on because we want to hear what they have to say. And, uh, we think our listeners would do well to go beyond our silly, you know, banter that my co-host and I have, uh, and, and study and, and listen and learn because I think a, uh, a laity that is familiar with the doctrines that the church, that their church confesses, whether that's a shorter catechism or a confession of faith or um, by way of reading a few books and listening to some sermons and lectures. Uh, I know I've benefited immensely in my walk and in the amount that I glean on the Lord's Day uh, from, from the preached word simply by saturating myself and understanding more of these doctrines. And um, people have written in and, and told us kind of similar things, so I hope people do that. And well, one since, last thing, the books. Uh, since, yeah. since you have asked about Old and New quite a bit, I do have two books Yes. On the use of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Um, they're, they're on the website. One is on um, 
the use of Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic literature and in the book of Revelation, the others on John's use of the Old Testament in Revelation. And my New Testament biblical theology is uh, basically, um, most of it's old and the new, as is my book, The Story Retold, hmm. together with Ben Glenn. I was listening to that interview as well, and if folks want to go over to uh, Reformed Forum's podcast, Christ the Center, um, Dr. Beale and, and Ben were on there speaking about the story retold in depth, which is part of why I didn't talk too much about that book, because there's already a great discussion uh, that, that a lot of our listeners um, either already have heard or if they haven't, here's me uh, setting people off again. Um, so By the way, I will, I will uh, say on this issue of the debate about whether the New Testament writers interpret the old in line with its meaning or not, if they don't and you preach that, can you imagine what that's going to do to the typical person's assurance of the unity of the inspired Bible? It's not going to do too well. Where some would say, well, okay. We want to preach the truth. Let it not do well, then. If that's the truth, well, it's not the truth. So, whatever. Amen. No, that's a good point. And I'm grateful that for the work that you and, and Ben have done, and obviously the work you've been doing for decades, and and um, and the work of faithful pastors who preach, who see the unity of the text, who see Christ in Scripture, who seek, as you talked about again and again today, uh, the original intention who see the immediate context, who see the broader context, all those many details, the pastors who labor through this faithfully for their congregations. Um, I'm grateful that even in an age where that is becoming out of vogue, unfortunately, and becoming um, detrimental to the health of many churches, there are faithful men and men who are preaching this. Um, And one last thing, what books would you recommend if if someone's had their interest peaked? Obviously, we're sending them to... uh, over to your website, um, where should someone start at a lay level? If uh, you know no seminary training, where where's a good place for someone to get into this idea of biblical interpretation? Hmm. Good question. There, there, there is a book that's really at a good lay level, but you know, there's some of it I disagree with. Some of it's good. It's called by Doug Stewart and Gordon Fee called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. But they've got a chapter on the old and the new that they disagree with. So, you know, there would be parts that I disagree with, but there are also some good parts. I have some of my students read uh, some of it. It's very good on genre, how, how, how important it is to determine what kind of literary style uh, a book is? Is it historical narrative? Is it poetry? Um, is it epistolary? Is it apocalyptic? And depending on which it is, there's certain general hermeneutical rules for how to interpret those. And they do a good job on that. So they're not, uh, they're not reformed. And then your books uh, on the topic, obviously there's the recent one, uh, The Story Retold, Right. There is uh, the New Testament use of the Old Testament. You've mentioned the commentary um, on the, uh, the New right. Testament. Right. I have uh, a book, too, together with being glad again, on uh, the concept of mystery, or uh, when the New Testament uses mystery, what's in mind? Because some people think that, you know, when Paul says, oh, this is a mystery, that it's something, and then he talks about the Old Testament, that it's something the Old Testament had no idea about. This is a brand new thing, never before found in sacred uh, uh, scriptural history, and 
uh, our view is it's not about something brand new that's revealed, mm. but it's something that was there in seed form that now has much greater clarity. Mm. Like that's what the mystery is. And the, what was the title of that book again? Oh, goodness. I, I didn't like the title. Oh, I remember you mentioning that on the, uh, the reformed forum episode about uh, some of the, the publishing situations with titles. It's hidden, but now revealed. Hidden, but now revealed. Something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. there it is. I was just on uh, your website there. Hidden, but now revealed, a biblical theology of mystery. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So what we do is we go through where the, uh, those uh, words for mystery are found and the gospels fall in Revelation. And then we have a chapter, because sometimes the word doesn't occur, but you have the same concept happening where, where the New Testament is clarifying uh, and, and making much clearer something from the Old Testament. Hmm. Well, amen. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure to sit down and, and uh, get this information overload. And I'm hopeful that uh, my listeners are as excited as I am right now to, to go and I, I told you before you did this interview that uh, these questions were packed. Oh, yeah. I don't... Uh, I'm not, they're packed. So anyway, I could have gone on at further length, but I decided to spare your audience. Appreciate it. But also to our audience, go pick up some of the books. If, if one of these topics has caught your interest, go pick up a book and learn more about it. I mean, that's what I do. I, I get obsessed with the topic and I end up picking up a bunch of books from, from reliable authors and disappear into that for a little while. So I would um, say that uh, Goldsworthy is a good Australian author. Goldsworthy is his last name. Um, and, and, um, also, oh gosh, who was the fellow that taught hermeneutics at Calvin Theological Seminary? He's a Dutch guy. Um, he has a good book on, uh, the modern preacher and the ancient text. Um, that's with Erdman's mm. and he has another one called Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Both those are good books. So those are the titles, you know, Modern Preacher in the Ancient Text and um, uh, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And then he actually has a series on Preaching Christ from different books, but they're all, they're very good. Yeah. So those would be some that I would, uh, some that I would recommend. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, Dr. Greg Beal, folks, go to gkbeal.com uh, to get access to more of those resources and to find these publications so that you too can get a hold uh, of some excellent works uh, on a diverse range of topics, all orbiting around um, some of the things we've spoken about tonight. Wow, what an incredible conversation. Um, honestly, drinking, uh, drinking water from a fire hose. Uh, uh, the, the conversation was rich, um, and the answers, um, well, I, I know that you didn't get through all your questions. That is an absolute sure fact. Didn't. You didn't even come close, No, but, um, yeah, I mean, that was amazing. Truly amazing. You know what else is amazing? This week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Lagos. Now Lagos has a new edition out, which we have to talk about soon, but in the, in the interim here, you can still go to logos.com slash distilling theology, get a discount off your first purchase and get in there. I believe it's still like 50 bucks. You can get in if you, if you're starting out for fundamentals package, 
gives you a basic library, some basic tools. And the nice thing about that is you can get the free book of the month. You can buy books on sale. You can buy just the books you want. Um, you don't have to go in all in out of the gate, though, if you want to, I would highly recommend it because we've been using Logos almost every single episode since they've started sponsoring episodes. And even when they weren't sponsoring, we were still using it because it's just great. Um, it's a wonderful resource, all the interconnected tools. Uh, they're constantly adding new indexed digital books. And um, that includes new books that are being published as well as old books. Um, the language tools are great. Like I am not one to use my phone as a Bible in church, but occasionally I will pull up Lagos so that I can highlight and get more information on a word or on a passage because it's so handy or to just very quickly swap translations. Um, because I only bring my, my elect standard version into the church with me. (laughs) Um, but yeah, super, super great. They are still the biggest sponsor of this channel. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, that, that's a that's a split responsibility, but we are super grateful to Lagos for sponsoring this week's episode. Now, Justin, if people uh, listen to this and they, they say, hey, you know, I really like distilling theology and I wish that I had distilling theology and, you know, a neighborhood of uh, of podcasts to listen to. Uh, where where can they go to uh, to Guys, acquire if you want to listen to our mature older siblings, head on over <laughs> to the Society of Reform Podcasts. Um, well, it's reformpodcasts.com, the Society of Reform Podcasters, and there is quite a laundry list of podcasts to continuously so fill many. your ears with reformed content, both uh, both credo and pedo persuasions. So there's no bias here, um, even though we're all definitely biased. Uh, check out the <laughs> Five Points Church Planting Podcast, uh, Assurance of Pardon, the Baptist Broadcast, the Bobcast, Distilling Theology, of course, Fox Den. Grace and Peace Radio, the particular Baptist podcast, Reform Brotherhood, Reform Standard, Relentless, and Small Town Theologian. Uh, in this list is is often changing, so you may find uh, older content, you may find newer content. Who knows what you're going to find? But head on over to Reform Podcasts with an S dot com, and you will be continuously pleased and edified, and hopefully sanctified by what you're listening to. Amen. If you guys, however, want more of us specifically. Because you're just bizarre and you want to spend more time with us. Uh, Blake, where can people go uh, to do such a thing? Well, there's a number of places. You can interact with us on Twitter, which we are actually using sometimes. If you go to distilling T, as in the letter, uh, we're not on there all the time, but sometimes we post things and it's fun. Uh, We're more active on Instagram where we're posting photographs of books and whiskeys, though, again, not as active as we used to be because life's a little crazy uh but we're doing good however the main spot that people hang out with us is at our facebook group it's a discussion group uh it goes way beyond the scope of the podcast it's called just distilling theology if you look it up you'll go to the group um it is a group by our facebook page which you should definitely like called uh just distilling theology facebook.com slash distilling theology um And that page, we post updates about the giveaways and things of that nature. We'll probably do a few more live streams there, though the predominant place we do our live streams, we're going to talk about in just a moment. Uh, But yeah, the Facebook group is great. It's a lot of fun. Uh, People post whiskey and book recommendations. They talk about what they're reading, what they're studying. They ask cocktail questions. They talk about the podcast. Uh, There's lots of memes. And overall, it's really edifying and sage stage, and I really enjoy it. And I'm just constantly amazed that uh, people still like 
want to be a part of it and that it's been such a fun and growing community. I also am noticing something really funny. I just went to reformpodcast.com and uh, Tony and Jesse recently shifted the artwork style. So now if you go to the website, you see um, each of the podcasts has a little box and, and, and they're kind of in chronological order, but they're um, it's the Society of Reform Podcasters logo, but with the color scheme of the show. However, because we released three episodes in fairly rapid succession, just due to my backlog of editing, uh, there's like a line of just DT. Um, Look which, at that. I, That's know, pretty fancy. As it should be. It is pretty fancy. And more reason for you to check it out at reformedpodcast.com. That was like a double affirmation. So I don't know if that means we still have to do it next week. Now we do. But uh, you know what we're going to do every single week is talk about our Patreon. Uh, amazing that we were still talking about it back at episode one. <laughs> We were so ambitious, but now it's, you know, it's established, uh, even as we're still shifting technologies, learning and growing. But Justin, uh, if people want more Distilling Theology content, not just the the conversations in our group, uh, what do we got for them? At what level? Listen, listen, folks. Patreon is like our immediate family. We are so close and yet so far. And if you want... (laughs) If you want an absurd amount of content uh, as compared to uh, what everyone else is getting, uh, you can join us there at $4.99 a month. You'll get early releases. You'll get video streams like this episode you got uh, a long time ago. I was going to say, some of these episodes are absurdly early releases. (laughs) Yeah. Exclusively early, one might say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You will also get a discount on shopdistillingtheology.com where you can get merchandise and mugs and things. Um, If you join us at $14.99 a month, uh, because you like us a little more, uh, you can get extra bonus content. And after three months, you'll get an exclusive Distilling Theology Patreon mug. If you join us at twenty nine ninety nine a month, because, well, you just think we're incredibly handsome, uh, you will not only get the mug, but after three months, you'll get an exclusive Distilling Theology Frosted Glencairn Glass, uh, which you could see right now if you were already a patron. Oh, snap. And if you join us at the... Elite tier, oh, forty nine ninety nine a month, bro. You will get all of the previous content, plus you will get a pair of these Distilling Theology Glencairns. And I'm just going to throw this out there because uh, I'm going to make an executive decision. Maybe I'll pick one of you to have a guest uh, to, to be a guest on the show. Oh, because I can do that. Because guess what? This is also my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, join us at Patreon. Uh, <laughs> just search for Distilling Theology. Uh, we love having you guys is because of you guys we're able to do this show that we're able to do this um, every every week whenever we get the chance and we have a blast Uh, so really you guys are what make this happen so we appreciate you it's true yeah we couldn't do these giveaways without our patreons we couldn't Mm -hmm. do um, because basically that's it right it's the the excess overflows um, by God's providence and and the people that have provided uh and supported us we've been able to upgrade our equipment so that we sound better more consistent uh we've been able to upgrade our live streams we've been able to bring new guests on and send them thank you gifts and we're able to do some of these really amazing giveaways and then in this case like we also had all these publishers christian publishers that were willing to provide books so that our listeners can get access so again your third and final reminder this episode to go to distillingtheology.com slash giveaway and enter for your opportunity to win. We don't like to say chance because we don't really believe in chance because uh, we're Christians and uh, <laughs> yeah. chance is nothing and chance can do nothing to quote uh, <laughs> okay, the late R. great R.C. Sproul. I've been listening to his Foundation's Systematic Theology series on my commutes and it is so good. You know, out of nothing, 
nothing comes. And uh, on that note, Justin, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli de Gloria. <laughs>